Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, we dive into DAOs with Zodiac, a standard for composable DAO tooling. Guests Nathan Genever, Oren McMillan, and I chat about the origin of the Zodiac project, the learnings they gathered from earlier tools like Gnosis Safe and SafeSnap. We do a run through of the components that make up the Zodiac standard, new upcoming innovations, the emerging trends in DAOs, and their management and more. But before we start in, I want to encourage anyone who's looking for a new opportunity to work with the teams building ZK Tech to check out the ZK Jobs Board. There we have teams from our community posting their open positions. It's a great place to find your future collaborators. We've added a link in the show notes. Now I want to pass the mic to my producer, Tanya, to tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Polygon. Polygon is one of the top Ethereum scaling platforms for developers with over 130 million unique user wallets. They're known for Polygon POS chain, one of the most popular chains built on top of Ethereum, sometimes clocking even more daily active users than Ethereum itself. And the team is actually working on a spectrum of solutions, including EVM-compatible zero-knowledge roll-up solutions like Polygon Hermes, Polygon Maiden, and Polygon Nightfall, which is built in association with Ernst & Young. They also recently announced their acquisition of Mir Protocol, now known as Polygon Zero. These solutions inherit the security of Ethereum and use the power of zero knowledge. Over here at the podcast, we've been tracking Polygon's journey and have recently had Bob and Threadbare from Maiden and Jordi and David from Hermes on the show to talk about their respective projects. We strongly recommend you check out those episodes to learn more about their vision, project roadmap, and progress so far. Polygon is also hiring and have a few jobs listed on the ZK Jobs Board. You can check out that link in the show notes. So thank you again, Polygon. Now here is our deep dive into Zodiac. Today, we're going to be exploring Zodiac, a standard for composable DAO tooling. And with me on the show, we have Nathan Genever, an applied cryptographer working with Gnosis on the Zodiac tools, and Oren McMillan, a product manager and Solidity developer who co-founded the Gnosis Guild. So welcome to the show, Oren and Nathan. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I did an episode with Martin from Gnosis, I think about, let's say, eight months ago. And in that episode, we talked about something called safe snap and, you know, Gnosis safe and how useful like that, that multi-sig had basically become this tool for DAOs. And as I understand it, Zodiac kind of came out of that. We also mentioned something called the Gnosis Guild. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense for like, what are these different elements? How are they related? Uh, I guess late 2019, we started making kind of very concrete steps towards launching the Gnosis DAO. Um, and in doing so, did this kind of wholesale review of all of the DAO tooling in the space uh, and, and essentially arrived at the conclusion that none of it quite checked all of the boxes that we wanted for the Gnosis DAO. Uh, and in particular, there's kind of three boxes that were really hard to check all three with the existing tooling. So one was... We wanted to use a framework that was kind of proven to secure really, really large amounts. Uh, mm. So uh, the the Gnosis treasury uh, is is really large. I mean, I think it's somewhere around 600 million in various assets at the moment. 
Um, so we needed something that we were really comfortable to to kind of migrate that treasury into. The next one was uh, not wanting to price participants out of uh, participating, not wanting to price out voters uh, with the the kind of cost of on-chain voting on uh, on mainnet. Is that like gas fees? Yeah, exactly. So like the the, um, the fees associated with uh, with voting on mainnet, uh, particularly around the time we were trying to launch, were were absurd. Um, you know, like a to to cast a vote in say an Aragon DAO or a Moloch DAO or something like that would cost uh, you know a hundred dollars to uh, you know a few hundred dollars uh, wow. often, uh, just because of these kind of absurd gas uh, price spikes. And so you know, for someone who has only a few hundred dollars worth of uh, governance tokens. In a DAO, it just it doesn't make any sense to to burn that amount to uh, to participate in voting. So we're very mm. conscious of wanting to lower the barrier to participation as much as possible. Uh, and then the third piece was wanting to make sure that we didn't kind of unreasonably or unnecessarily lock ourselves into one kind of particular path. We wanted to kind of maintain maximum possible future flexibility. Um, and so it, in the end, it ended up. Uh, I don't know, I guess maybe somewhat obviously, we, we ended up landing on the safe as our best kind of possible foundation for this and decided that uh, we would lean into a pattern that already existed uh, in the pairing of the Gnosis safe with Snapshot. This this was kind of a, a pattern that emerged fairly organically in response to kind of DeFi summer. And this was... Uh, yeah, most of the tooling didn't work, and so we there was this uh, kind of really common pairing between uh, Gnosis Safe and Snapshot that, that mm-hmm. kind of emerged as a as a de facto standard for a lot of the projects uh, spinning up or, or kind of wanting to to kind of become more DAO like during this kind of DeFi summer. Um, and so leaning into that trend, we said, oh, well, how can we give Snapshot uh, instances more concrete control over over Gnosis Safe? And so that's where this Safe Snap plug-in and the kind of underlying uh, contracts, the reality module, were born. And that essentially kind of snowballed into what is now the Zodiac ecosystem, the Zodiac standard and all the kind of suite of tools and, and the whole, whole kind of mission behind that. Uh, and I guess to, to kind of disambiguate that from Gnosis Guild, from Gnosis, from Gnosis DAO, uh, essentially Gnosis uh, is the system of legal entities that exist in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gnosis DAO is this uh, kind of illegal DAO structure that uh, that was spun up relatively recently and, and now is the kind of custodian of and steward of the, the kind of Gnosis ecosystem and the, the, the treasury for, um, for the Gnosis ecosystem. Gnosis Guild is a team that has spun out of or is in the process of kind of spinning out of Gnosis uh, to kind of specifically steward the Zodiac ecosystem, which is this um, ah. uh, essentially standard for composable DAO tooling, uh, along with kind of a collection of tools built to that standard. Cool. So do you see the Zodiac standard as sort of a competitor to what was there before? Things like the Aragon tool set, or do you see it at a different point in the stack? Yeah, it's it's definitely not intended to be a competitor. I mean, a lot of the stuff that tools like Aragon, uh, Moloch, or DowStack, or uh, Compound Governor, or any of these uh, things do, we don't do natively. Rather, what we, I think like the really key insight is the idea of kind of decoupling your account with the mechanisms that control it. 
uh, and in doing so, kind of enabling a whole bunch of uh, possibilities and and uh, avoiding the kind of platform lock-in that uh, that you kind of may end up in otherwise. And so, I guess to to illustrate there, what I mean is, say you were to start off as a as an Aragon DAO, uh, and then six months down the road, you want to migrate and become a Moloch DAO. You decide, hey, Moloch does this thing that we like better, and so now we want to be a Moloch DAO. To do so, now you have to kind of create proposals to move all of your assets, uh, to update all of the systems where your DAO might be a, an owner of some kind of external contracts, to update all of the ex- external references to your uh, to your DAO, probably on a whole bunch of websites that you don't control. And so you kind of have this monumental coordination challenge to move from kind of one framework to another. And so what the the really kind of key insight is for uh, for Zodiac is if you decouple those two things, if you treat, if you basically have a, a, an account that you can then plug those other mechanisms in, into, you avoid those kind of monumental coordination challenges. Now, if you want to move from Aragon to Moloch, you use one proposal to enable Moloch as a uh, module to your account and disable Aragon as a uh, module to your account. And so I wouldn't say it's a competitor to those things. Instead, I would say it's a, a way of of making all of these tools much more composable. Interesting. Uh, they, they can kind of exist in, in one ecosystem and, and kind of work in parallel on one uh, on kind of one organization or kind of in, in parallel as part of one system uh, that kind of is or represents an organization. Nathan, I want to hear a little bit from you about when you kind of joined this project and what your contrib- like how you're contributing because you're an applied cryptographer. So I am curious like where, you know, where's the cryptography actually? <laughs> Yeah, that's probably just a, a fancy word that I use to say I take the hard work of real cryptographers and then put them into things like solidity <laughs> contracts and and hash <laughs> things together and and do yeah Merkle proofs that you know simple stuff like that right. But I think it's kind of cool how I came about this project. I was uh, getting interested in building uh, a DAO and building you know a DAO. You start to look around the landscape and uh, you'll look at the Moloks and the compounds and the uh, the Aragons and the and the Dow stacks and you know the first kind of thing that came to my mind was this this idea that that Oren mentioned about not having the ability to decouple um, away from the stack if I wanted to right so I was like very kind of conscious ahead of time to to want a system that would be flexible and something that I wouldn't get locked into and at that time I didn't see anything that would facilitate that so I just started going off and building and started to. Uh, create my own stack and I was building my own stack and I realized that my stack would just be like every other stack if I didn't find a way to make it easily upgradable. And that's when I kind of saw, you know, what was happening with uh, with Snapshot and the Gnosis coupling. And I kind of came to the same conclusion independently that Gnosis was coming to uh, in the same time frame. that the, the safe makes like a, a great uh, base layer to stack a bunch of other tooling on top of. And so I started building um, a system that's you know similar or composable with uh, Compound. It, it runs in the same sort of uh, manner as Compound with delegated votes, and I intended it to be stacked on top of the Gnosis safe. And uh, nowadays, as uh, Oren mentions, these things are not competitive. So we, you know, you'll see things like Aragon uh, supporting uh, the ability to plug in the Gnosis safe. 
and to, to make calls into the Gnosis safe in a way that looks like the Zodiac standard. So we can kind of see this, you know, nice connecting point between all of these different frameworks and and swap them in and out as we please. And it also, I think, is is cool for experimentation as well to to be able to to try out uh, new forms of uh, of governance and and new patterns to build tooling around. When you use the term standard, like I I keep thinking that there's like these components like a like a module and stuff like that but when you say standard maybe can you can you kind of explore what that actually looks like like how do, like is it is it that each side like Moloch Aragon would they have to plug something in like yeah what is the standard part of it yeah so when we say standard we really mean kind of like a standard way of uh building tools so that they can play nicely together uh and so essentially what we've done is just taking the interface that already existed on the Gnosis Safe, uh, particularly the the module interface, uh, there's a handful of functions: uh, add module, remove module, uh, execute transaction from module, execute transaction from module with data, and these uh, these basically form the base of the the kind of Zodiac standard now. So we we kind of use the Safe as our prototype for what this standard should look like. If if mm-hmm. we want to have external contracts come and own uh, a Gnosis safe or, or kind of any other uh, avatar contract that that would represent the kind of core of the organization, then uh, it should essentially implement this interface. Uh, if you want to build a tool that can can plug in and control these things, then it should be able to interact with this interface. So when we say standard, we really just mean like it's a, it's a standard way of kind of building out tooling so that they can uh, kind of be stacked together and play nicely together. Got it. So it's sort of like it's particular... I'm just picturing from the Moloch side, for example, like are they already built that way that they can easily lock into the standard or they have to, do they have to do something? So the nice thing with uh, most of the existing DAO tooling is that they uh, generally have some method by which they can make arbitrary uh, contract calls. And mm-hmm. so because of that, they, they're kind of compatible out of the box, even if they're not kind of explicitly designed to be compatible. Because they can make arbitrary contract calls, arbitrary function calls, then they're able to interact with that interface that I just described. Um, and then the, the kind of more explicit step usually is baking that into the interface somehow. So going in and adding the the ability, like the, the guys from uh, Raid Guild uh, and Dow House went and built out the ability to control a Gnosis safe from a, uh, a DAO house DAO um, to kind of explicitly add support for this kind of standard and this feature set. And just in terms of dating, sort of what at what point did, well, and we'll get into the components of Zodiac, but like at what point do you feel like Zodiac really arrived? Because you, you've talked a little bit about this evolution, right? Like it was Gnosis safe, snapshot, safe snap, like where does Zodiac start in this, in this trajectory? Yeah, we, we kind of officially announced it on September 4th, uh, sorry, 14th last year. So maybe mm-hmm. that you know, we've obviously been thinking about it internally for, for quite a bit longer. Uh, we pulled Nathan into to a lot of that discussion uh, quite a bit earlier, but I th- don't think it had kind of fully materialized publicly into Zodiac until then. Yeah, I think in back then there was less general EVM calls by some of the platforms. And the standard part of this, it, it creates this ability to stack tools together um, in a nice cohesive way. And so things like what Raid Guild did to 
to get the Malik DAO to to be able to plug into into the standard uh, opens them up to trying some new things as well. So I think it's a really good time now to start diving into the components of this standard, because I feel like some of them, I mean, really, you can see existing concepts, ideas, products that have sort of been incorporated into this, but there's a new, I guess, framework. Is that an okay way to call it? Like a a bit of a framework for thinking about these different components? Yeah, I think that's a, a perfectly fine way to think about it. (laughs) Cool. All right. So let's start with these kind of the components and maybe we'll start from something that we are somewhat familiar with, which is SafeSnap. Although we should potentially redefine it for the listeners who didn't hear that previous episode. So what was SafeSnap and what is it in Zodiac? Yeah. uh, So it it hasn't really changed uh, since launching Zodiac, but so what SafeSnap is, is essentially a way of bridging off-chain votes on snapshot to on-chain execution via a safe uh, and doing so in a, in a kind of trustless way um, or a way that's kind of secured by game theory. Uh, it's actually, it's a pretty novel mechanism um, that most people haven't interacted with and, and rightfully so, a lot of people are a little bit spooked by when they first kind of realize what actually is, uh, is under the hood, but it's, it's really cool. It was taking, from what I remember, it was taking the sort of off-chain signaling component of Snapshot and forcing sort of an on-chain execution. So it's like your vote actually will happen, not your vote is a signal that you want something to happen. Right, yeah. And so the, the way that that works, so there's, there's, uh, there's this oracle problem here, right? Like you, it's an off-chain vote and you have to somehow get a representation of it on-chain and you want that representation to be truthful. And so there's a whole mm-hmm. different, whole array of different ways that kind of oracles can function and do function out in the wild. Uh, and the one that we chose is called reality.eth. So the, the underlying contract for our uh, safe snap is actually, we call our reality module. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of generally applicable. You could use it to bridge uh, outcomes from snapshot like we do with the safe snap plugin, but you can also use it to, uh, you could bridge outcomes from just about anyway. You could have Discord polls or Twitter polls, or you could roll dice or flip coins or whatever you want to, to trigger execution. So long as the, the Oracle can, uh, kind of verify that the the outcome happened. Uh, and so anyway, the, the Oracle is really, really cool. It's mm. um, an escalation game. And so basically what happens is you ask it a question. You say, did this proposal pass? And then anyone can come and set the outcome of that question. Uh, to set the outcome, they have to put down a bond. Uh, when they put down the bond, then that kicks off a timeout period. If that timeout period ends, then the answer is set. But at any point during that timeout period, anyone else can come and double the bond to change the outcome. Uh, that resets the timeout and, and kind of resets the game. And so that process continues on and on and on until the timeout eventually ends. And mm. so because the bond is doubled every time, the bonds can get kind of unreasonably large very quickly. Um, okay. And so the the way that the kind of game theory plays out is that at the top of the escalation game, the shelling point is the true outcome, as the outcome that that uh, should resolve to. It's essentially that means it's much easier to coordinate around the the true outcome than to coordinate around a false outcome. Uh, and so the the bonds have gotten so large that people need to start pooling capital to to make them. And so they're going to it's going to be much easier to pull toward the shelling point, the true outcome, than the the false outcome. 
Uh, and so because you know that's how the top of the escalation game will play out, it's there's very little motivation at the bottom of the escalation game to try to sneak a, uh, a false outcome through because you're essentially just paying the person who comes and doubles your bond to uh, set it to the true outcome. Uh, and so like in practice, we very rarely see uh, the bonds move beyond just the first bond. Usually someone puts down the first bond, they set the right outcome, and that's all that happens. Uh, every now and again, uh, in, in other contexts, we've seen the escalation game play out through through a few levels and then uh, in in some like uh, in omen uh, the prediction markets case we've seen it actually kind of go all the way up to then being kicked off to an arbitration which is an option uh, in in kind of Claris court and that is a really fun process to watch as well uh, I'd recommend going and uh, searching for Claris case 302 if you want to mm-hmm. uh, dive into that more uh, there's some some really fun stuff that you'll find on YouTube around that. Um, but, uh, yeah, in general, we don't ever see it, um, progress past the first bond because there's just no incentive to lie on it. I actually, as you were saying this, it did, it showed echoes of what I had understood sort of the gnosis work before when they were doing prediction market stuff. Um, I don't know that they had exactly this game, but this idea of bidding for truth and like somehow putting up money to kind of make a vote or prediction or say some sort of truth. This sort of has echoes of it. So you mentioned two things, so Omen and Claro's Court. Can you can you yeah. say what those are, actually? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Omen is a prediction market. Uh, this okay. is the, one of the prediction markets that kind of knows us help to uh, bootstrap. And mm-hmm. the its oracle mechanism, the way that it brings kind of results from real-world events on-chain is reality.eth. And so this is obviously uh-huh. the, the kind of connecting thread that landed us on this. It was a, an oracle that we were already comfortable with, uh, that we understood how it worked and we were, were confident it would work well in this context as well. And then uh, Kleros is the arbitration option that Omen uses. So it's a, uh, it's a decentralized kind of court system. Uh, and one of the options for reality.eth is to select a uh, arbitration option that could be used if the question goes kind of too far up the escalation game and you just want to get a, a definite resolution out of some other mechanism. So uh, reality is kind of agnostic to the arbitration option that it uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Omen uses uh, Chloris as, as their arbitration option for the uh, reality module most of the time we don't, or at least like the ones that we've helped set up and obviously like for the Gnosis DAO and stuff, we don't have an arbitration option set, uh, but for yeah, for other DAOs uh, using it, there is an option there to set an arbitration option if you do want to be able to defer to something like Claris Court uh, or some other uh, yeah ultimate arbitrator for those outcomes. Cool. So just to recap this, though, so this is reality, and reality is was Safe Snap with this like was the Oracle kind of escalation game already in safe snap before it became reality or yeah. okay that was so, like already connected i think the, the naming here is probably pretty confusing so reality.eth <laughs> is the oracle and then okay. our uh, our module we ended up calling the reality module because it's basically deferring to reality.eth to okay. uh, get its decisions got it so this is but this is one of the components right this is one of the pieces modules of zodiac um, yes. No longer called Safe Snap, more and and now you've kind of rebranded that also as Reality because it calls the Reality.eth contract. 
Again, naming is probably confusing. So SafeSnap is still a thing. Like SafeSnap is oh, how is we refer to the okay. setup. That, that's just how we refer to the setup with uh, Snapshot. So you have this kind of plugin within Snapshot that is the SafeSnap mm-hmm. plugin. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of, I guess, uh, a distinction between the kind of application layer piece and the, the contract layer piece. So at the contract layer, it's called the reality module. Uh, and the reason being is that it's it's use case agnostic. Like you could use it for snapshot, as in like safe snap, or you could use it for bringing information from just about anywhere else. So if we wanted to set up a similar uh, similar thing with Discord or with Twitter polls or anything like that, then we'd use the same reality module and we plug it into Discord instead, uh, or we plug it into Twitter instead, and you have a bot kind of running on, or yeah, a, a bot or something else like that running on. Uh, on that platform rather than on Snapshot's platform. Mm. Sorry, I think I missed this though. The app, but you sort of mentioned like the contract level, but then the application level, it is also called reality or? At the application level, it would be called, like in Snapshot's case, it's still just called Safe Snap. Um, okay. And so, yeah, this is super confusing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so good to know though. Snapshot is how we'd refer to it if, if like we'd refer to this kind of, this whole setup of, a snapshot instance with the uh, SafeSnap plugin that, which is connected to a reality module, which is connected to a Nosa Safe. So, like the shorthand way of saying that whole thing is SafeSnap. Uh, but then, yeah, there's all these kind of separate pieces that make it up. Okay. The next thing listed after reality was Bridge. Is Bridge a component, or is Bridge, as we understand it, bridges to other things? What what is Bridge? So bridge, bridge is actually a pretty exciting one for me. Um, so what we just talked about with the reality uh, module is, you know, a system to collect votes in uh, in an effective way, right? Since uh, gas prices make it, you know, hard to do certain types of, of voting. You know, you have delegation as the primary means of on-chain voting. Uh, and part of the reason for doing that is to uh, make the gas costs reasonable. So reality is a you know type of bridge. You know, using an oracle is a type of way of bridging data uh, to the main chain. Okay. And the bridge, the bridge module is uh, you know a Zodiac module. And so we could clarify what modules are inside of Zodiac. And and modules are a piece that can plug into the Gnosis safe, and mm-hmm. uh, they can do anything as long as it follows this. Uh, connecting point standard to get information from whatever you want to code in your module over to the safe. And Bridge is a particular module that is intended to pick up uh, data from other chains. And the current Bridge implementation that we have right now is working with the uh, the Gnosis chain, uh, formerly known as XI chain. Mm-hmm. And it is intended to take bridged uh, information uh, from that chain and so you can do things like uh, put a voting system on an alternative chain and then do the more expensive parts, which would be collecting votes from people um, and have the final result you know, bridged over to the asset manager where you're holding the majority of the things that matter in the more secure or robust chains. Uh, and that's one example of using the bridge. That's the, that's the example that I'm particularly excited about. Uh, but in, in general, it just will bridge any data from from that chain. That's cool too. It kind of speaks to the problem that was highlighted earlier, this idea of gas fees. So if you were voting on the L2 on the Gnosis chain, then it would be quite cheap. And anyone even with a small amount could actually do their vote without noticing and kind of 
you know, any of their of their holdings being drained away by gas. And yet the execution would still happen on the main chain. So you just mentioned, though, like bridge right now is the Gnosis old XDAI. By the way, is that when did that happen? That's like really, really recent, right? This is like like XDAI is now Gnosis. Um, when when did that happen? Within the last few weeks. That's um, yeah, that's yeah, really, really <laughs> recent. <laughs> yeah. It's very cool, though. It's a really amazing evolution there. But yeah, so right now there's that sort of. It, there's a, there's something called bridge, which bridges Gnosis to the L1 being Ethereum. But like, is there a plan for this to also be dealing with all of the other L2s? Can you imagine this actually even be being used on like other EVM compatible non L2 chains? Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's part of some of the research that I'm actively working on right now. Mm-hmm. And so what we really want is the most trust minimized bridge possible. And so there are um, trust assumptions to most of these bridges. Um, even an Oracle with an escalation game has, you know, some assumptions with the uh, the game theoretics there. And with the bridging mechanisms for uh, the Gnosis chain, it's uh, fairly weak trust assumptions. It's uh, some multi-signature signers that will be able to pass the message over. So, um, you know, that's not the most ideal way to uh, secure the connection between, you know, where the decisions are being made and the actual assets that need to be moved or need to be dealt with or wherever the endpoint of those decisions are, um, you know, you want to make sure that's secure so that the, the bridging cannot corrupt the important parts of the things that are sitting on layer one. Uh, so we have the ideas of using, um, you know, rollups potentially. So there's uh, an EVM rollup from ETH Relay that will, you know, try to um, do uh, header validation from EVM chain to EVM chain and uh, header validation between, you know, say Bitcoin and Ethereum is rather simple. And this is because of the proof of work consensus uh, mechanism that Bitcoin implements. Uh, that is fairly reasonable for the Ethereum chain to validate. But uh, the Ethereum chain uses a bit more of a complex consensus uh, algorithm with uh, ETHash. And a lot of these uh, uh, proof of works and these consensus algorithms started to pick up this idea of making them memory hard. And this is an attempt to keep them on GPUs as opposed to moving them onto ASICs very quickly. Mm. So you end up with um, you know validation being a little bit more expensive. And uh, it's currently a little too expensive for the just base smart contracts of the uh, layer one to be able to um, you know, validate these headers in, in a trustless way. Uh, so things like E3Lay are working on a bit of a roll-up system, which would be kind of like a, a fraud-proof game to be able to, to verify that these uh, validations were done correctly. But we're also looking into zero knowledge for this as well. And uh, there is a bit of research that's been done on being able to do uh, these validations and zero knowledge. But from my understanding and my latest research, I think that that's still an open question. Uh, being able to get a circuit that can do these kind of validations. You're thinking something like Macy, maybe? Like this is the at least the most popular ZK-focused schema that, I, that I've heard of. <laughs> well, Macy is a bit of uh, a different concept. So Macy is a, a voting system, and I'll let uh, Orion get deeper into this because he's, he's very uh, knowledgeable on this Macy system, but it's generally to prevent collusion and bribe attacks. But for purely bridging, you know, you, you could... 
I think, in theory, think of using something like uh, ZK EVM potentially, okay. where you would you know run all of the all the voting on the uh, EVM uh, ZK EVM chain, and then potentially you know all the bridging happens for every piece of state on the ZK EVM. So that would be like a natural bridge um, that is not ready yet, and there's still a lot of work. And I know you've talked to, I believe, Matter Labs in the past about ZK EVM, yeah, and uh, it's a really exciting piece of technology, I think. Yeah. And Jordy from Hermes was also uh, actually there's I, as far as I know, there's like three groups working on ZK EVM right now. ZK EVM also has different meanings in different contexts. Sometimes it's like equal op code. Sometimes it's a compiling down to anyway. Uh, but that's a whole other topic. Um, and actually on the topic of voting, I actually want to hold on that because I have more questions on that. So I want to come back to it. First, I want to continue with these modules. And I actually have one more question on bridges. So like there are a lot of, there's a number of bridge focused teams that are just building bridges. But given that this is very much like about taking a snapshot, not necessarily about like transferring tokens from an L2 to an L1, are you even looking at those alternative bridging technologies or companies, something like, you know, Axelar or like Nomad, these, these kind of you know, bridge focused teams. Is there any work on that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're spot on, like most of the bridging that people do uh, is concerned with moving value from one chain to another, from one layer to another. Uh, and so generally when you think about securing those bridges, the, the kind of low hanging fruit or lower hanging fruit is still, uh, still complex and difficult to engineer, but the, the lower hanging fruit is to kind of economically secure them, essentially ensure that the person who would be sending on the kind of destination chain is bonded on the origin chain. Uh, and, and you always have some way of kind of proving if they don't deliver on the, uh, on the destination chain. So you can kind of slash their bond or kind of recover your funds, uh, on origin. So they, they kind of, incentivized to follow through on, on sending it on the destination because you've you've got their money held hostage on uh, on origin. The same isn't necessarily true if you're trying to bridge data, if you're trying to bridge state, um, in that you may be trying to bridge data that would, let's say, control a system or change a system that is much more valuable than what you could reasonably expect uh, a kind of router to put up as a bond. You know, say, say you're I don't know, the, the Yearn DAO and you're wanting to change some fundamental piece of, of a Yearn vault with billions sitting in it, you obviously can't expect the, the router to have locked up billions in a bond uh, so that you can pass some state across. Um, or alternatively, like if you're just trying to uh, bridge something that has essentially no financial value, it's uh, you're, you're just trying to bridge uh, I don't know, a, a message to someone or something, you know, you want to timestamp something, uh, then these things, again, there's very little, uh, it's very hard to kind of assign a specific value to it, even though it is valuable to you. And so those those types of uh, bridges typically are kind of not suitable for this, this application. And so that's where we get into um, the territory of using things like the arbitrary message bridge that has uh, this is the the bridge between Gnosis Chain and XDAI, which has kind of an Oracle set that you effectively trust to have unilateral control over your uh, over your thing on the other side, um, which is much less than ideal. You just said you just actually just said Gnosis and XDAI, but I think you meant Gnosis Chain and Mainnet, right? Yes, Gnosis Chain and Mainnet. 
uh, or, or nurses change <laughs> to a variety of other channels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I'm still very much uh, cool, cool. trying to, to kind of replace X-Dye with nurses chain in my mind. It, uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'll slip up more than once in the rest of the call. Um, it's very fresh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're kind of actively researching uh, other options. Nomad is one uh, that I had previously written off. And I think it was because of my own kind of misunderstanding of how it works. Uh, and I guess maybe to, to get a little bit gritty in that, uh, I had uh, kind of through reading through the documentation come to the conclusion that it was essentially secured the way that I just described, where I would be able to punish on origin, but not be able to stop the message on uh, destination. And in fact, the, um, the way that it works, they have essentially a, something analogous to kind of the optimistic watchtowers, uh, optimistic kind of watches, where there is a, a, a network of uh, users that are able to uh, stop a message and are, and are kind of financially incentivized to one, be online and to stop fraudulent messages before they actually are executable and kind of in doing so they would then also kind of participate in punishing the the uh, actor that sent the uh, the fraudulent message so by having this uh, additional layer of kind of watchers I think they actually are in a position where they're much more suitable for this use case uh, I didn't come to this conclusion until last Friday. And so I actually haven't chatted with Nathan about this yet. Oh. So Nathan's <laughs> learning this, uh, or at least like he's learning about my current understanding at the same time as you. Um, so yeah, this is super fresh. And but I think, our audience. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, Nomad, I think is really interesting. And I, I would definitely like to look at an implementation of our bridge module that makes use of Nomad. I think that's probably a shorter path to essentially anywhere to anywhere, uh, any EVM chain to mm -hmm. any EVM chain bridging. Uh, still doesn't have ideal trust assumptions, but it's definitely better than where we are currently. And uh, and we should be able to kind of roll it out to enable any to any bridging uh, much sooner than the, the system that Nathan's uh, describing, which is still very much in its uh, infancy. Very cool. Yes. Yeah. So we are you know, at the stage of you know the A and B from Gnosis chain uh, that that does work, and I, I do have prototypes of of that working and um, a nice full fledged uh, uh, DAO ecosystem. So, but yeah, moving over to these more you know trustless um, systems is the way to go, and I will need to check out Nomad. Arian just hit that one from me. <laughs> All right, let's move on to another module: uh, a delay. There's delay and exit. So we've done reality, bridge, delay, and, and now we're on delay and exit. So what's delay? Yeah, delay is a very simple one. It's a common pattern in uh, voting systems to put a delay mechanism between finalizing the vote and actually executing it. And uh, it's a bit of a safety measure to kind of you know check the results and give yourself some time in case something went wrong. Uh, so delay sits between some system, you know, potentially a, a voting system and the Gnosis safe and will gather up the transactions and uh, just put a delay on them and, and let it sit there for a little bit. And why do you do that? Why do you need it? It's, uh, it's a bit of a safety mechanism. So you can kind of couple it potentially with other modifiers or other modules. And you could, this could lead into a uh, a module that we're building. Well, it's it's a modifier. We might want to clarify the difference between modifiers and modules at some point. 
Um, but uh, it could lead into this other modifier that we built that has roles, and you might leave a specific role that can do a specific action, and potentially that action would be to, say, remove a bad module that decided to go uh, do something corrupt, and while the transactions were being delayed, you would have a, a chance to do that. That's. What, I mean, I'm kind of wondering like, what bad action could happen that you would even need this. Like, let, let's say you have a, a governance system, and it gets clearly kind of co-opted in some way and starts trying to push through malicious proposals, you know, drain the treasury and send it to X. That kind of malicious proposal, it's, it's beneficial if you have some mechanism to stop it, uh, or it can be beneficial if you have some mechanism to stop it. And so that's what this delay mechan- delay modifier is essentially uh, designed for. It, it gives you a window of time to respond to, uh, to these kind of things and then has a, a function where you can actually mark uh, delayed transactions as invalid and so stop them. And so there is a an owner on the modifier um, and that owner has the ability to call the function to essentially skip a transaction that's in queue. And so if depending on what you set as that owner, that could be anything. It could be your multisig, it could be some other kind of trusted user, it could be a, uh, a governance mechanism, uh, it could be a, a, a decentralized court, uh, whatever you like, um, you can kind of set as the owner of this module, and then that owner has the ability to skip transactions for you if if they come through and they're, they're malicious or, or you know don't align with what the DAO uh, kind of agrees to do or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, it's really there just as kind of a safety precaution to enable that. Um, the other thing that it uh, can enable you to do is uh, maybe this is a good segue into the exit module. Um, so. Let me let me kind of explain the exit module first, and then we'll tie it back to this. Uh, the exit module uh, essentially allows you to claim a share of the uh, DAO's treasury in exchange for some designated token. So essentially, it lets you replicate a rage quit like functionality, where you have some some designated token, and you can uh, yeah redeem that for a proportional share of the DAO's treasury, a proportional share of the DAO's other ERC-20 and native token assets. And so a really key piece of uh, RageQuit, a really key piece to it functioning as intended, is there being a period of time after a proposal passes uh, to when it can be executed. Um, During which you can rage quit. Exactly, yeah. So without that delay, your rage quit is pretty meaningless. Uh, if a proposal gets passed that you disagreed with, and uh, you know now it goes and spends all of the funds that you would have rage quit away if uh, if only you had the time. Uh, so that's that's kind of another use case where this might be uh, might be applicable. Is just to make sure that there's always enough time for people to exit, for people to rage quit before a decision is is actually enacted. The rage quit you're talking about. I mean, I think this was first popularized by Moloch Dow. Yes. Right. This was this idea that you could like. I mean, it, it's what it sounds like. Like you hate a decision so much that you're like, oh, I quit and you leave the space, but you actually get to take with you, yeah, you, flip, you flip the table, the table you... <laughs> burn your bridges and leave. Yeah, okay, exactly. And so I think this is a, also a really good illustration of kind of what the uh, Zodiac ecosystem or one kind of thing that it enables. You kind of, you get all of these small building blocks and you can kind of combine them together to create systems uh, that that kind of take on a variety of different mm. shapes. And so you could you could create a kind of Moloch-like uh, structure by combining 
the safe with the exit module and the delay module and then some other governance mechanism. Interesting. And this is kind of different from how a lot of other DAOs were kind of building themselves in the past or building up their tools, because often what they do is like fork the Moloch contracts or fork an existing DAO, which had been kind of built from scratch. And here it sounds like, yeah, you've basically made the components and maybe some choices that you can like you can configure things in a way so you can get the same effect without having to fork the exact code. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing that we uh, we kind of touched on briefly was not wanting to kind of unreasonably restrict future decisions. And so we kind of just recognize that most DAOs start off as a small group of people and, and probably the best choice for most DAOs initially is, is just a multi-sig. Mm. Um, but you don't want to kind of unreasonably restrict them to just being a multi-sig forever. And so part of what Zodiac enables is these really uh, incremental steps along a kind of progressive decentralization pathway uh, and, and that can kind of branch in any direction that the, the DAO wants. But you can slowly add in pieces to give the community uh, a say and give them more autonomy and add different pieces of security, start to restrict or remove the multi-sig owners uh, and add in all kinds of different decision-making mechanisms for different functions. Um, and I guess that's the probably the last piece that I really love about this as a framework is that it really allows you to match mechanism and decision type in a in a much more granular way where you can because you can have multiple mechanisms running in parallel and you can uh, if you want kind of very strictly scope those mechanisms uh, then you can uh, very much define which mechanisms should be used for which types of decisions and, and uh, ultimately should be able to get much more efficient uh, DAOs as a result. Cool. I had one before we move on to the sort of because there's this other component we've mentioned modules. And like very briefly mentioned modifiers or something called avatars. I want to also understand that dimension. But first with the delay, I mean, when you talk about a delay, I also have this like, I feel like there's a bit of an echo of the DAO, the DAO hack, the DAO hack that had this 35 day delay that sort of saved, well, gave people a little bit of breathing time to be able to potentially, you know, head to a white hat attack on it. That, by the way, is an amazing story. If people are listening and have never heard of the full DAO story, uh, I'll try to dig up. There's a really old episode we did with Griff Green where it was like a play-by-play of what went down there. It was very cool. But yeah, that delay, you know, it was this idea that there was a malicious attack, but because of the way the thing was built, there was this 35-day wait period before some action could be taken. And that was actually the time that people had to like make decisions and like find out what the community wanted to do. Is that where that comes from? Was it always part of sort of DAO thinking? Yeah, I, I think like time locks or delays are, are just a pretty proven strategy for uh, for securing things. You know, like this, that has roots well and truly before the DAO ecosystem was ever a thing, you know, like a time lock in a bank vault is, <laughs> a, uh, is a is a proven way to, you know, make sure that one of the people you share this bank vault with doesn't go and run off with all the money. Um, and so it's 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 very much a uh, yeah a, an old strategy, um, but it's been reincarnated multiple times in the DAO ecosystem. Obviously, with the DAO, uh, with Moloch, like we just mentioned, with uh, Open Zeppelin and uh, Compound Governor, uh, with their time lock. With Colony and the delay between, or Colony's kind of lazy consensus mechanism uh, has a has a time lock built in. Mm. I don't recall if Dowstack had a uh, a time lock. I don't think so. 
uh, and, you know, trusted and proven mechanism for, for adding a layer of security. And I do wonder if it's a bit of an, an admission of our code is law kind of inability to get things completely right. Um, so it does leave you with the some sort of escape hatches and potentially introduces some trust requirements. And, you know, a fork came out of the original DAO delay and, you know, potentially that's the most decentralized solution to to be in, in the situation of needing a delay. So uh, yeah. it's maybe not the most, you know, perfect solution, but, you know, perfection is hard to get right. And so we're incrementally pushing our way towards that. Very cool. So let's talk about these other elements. So what we've just covered, the reality bridge delay exit, these are modules, but you also have these things called modifiers, but like, let's even take a step back. There's something called avatars. There's these, uh, this other sort of axis. So let's kind of cover those. What's an avatar? Let's start there. Maybe an avatar is a, a cool name for something like the Gnosis safe. Okay. Uh, it's what would be representing the, the asset vault that holds on to the, the core pieces that you want to, to secure or passes the messages on as the kind of identity on the chain that you want to uh, interact with the rest of the chain with. And uh, it's an agnostic terminology. I think it's meant to allow any other type of system to plug itself in as an avatar if it you know, fulfills certain sets of requirements. But it isn't the voters. It's not like individual voters have avatars the way we understand it on Twitter or something like this. It's more like the wall, the shared wallet, that core thing is the avatar. Yeah. So we think about the avatar as like the DAO, the representation of the DAO on chain, essentially the address, the canonical address that you would say, this is the DAO on chain. That is, that is your kind of avatar. And so the Gnosis Safe is our prototype for an avatar. We're obviously pretty incentivized to use that, but we were very deliberate about wanting this to be uh, a kind of open standard, wanting it to be unopinionated as much as possible about what you plug it into and wanting to leave it open for other people to make a choice on what that avatar is. So we don't want to force people to use the safe. We mm. think it's the best choice, but we don't want the standard to be more opinionated than it needs to be about that um, about that choice. And we want to leave it open to other people to come and implement alternate avatars if there's some improvement that they think they can make over the safe. I wonder, like, are there other really popular multi-sig standards? Like there used to be parity multi-sig, but I think that was wound down. Um, what else was there? Like, are there other multi-sigs that are That's really- That's a polite way to put it. <laughs> One wound down? <laughs> it it so was, The, the no. parody multi-sig had a- um... Well, it had two, it did two hacks and then it, then they yeah. stopped. They were like, let's not use this anymore. Um, right. But yeah, there are some others out there. Um, I think Argent is another really good example of a contract wallet mm. that uh, could be used as an avatar. Uh, the interface is a little bit different, but it, it has uh, some very similar kind of design philosophy. Um, Ethereum had a, a, a contract wallet uh, implementation that could probably be used in a similar way. Uh, perhaps there's others, Nathan? I'm not familiar with any others. I think you would, you would know more. Um, yeah, I've always thought of Gnosis as the canonical one, although I know that's not necessarily true. Um, I have a little sort of side question on this. Like, obviously, this is very, very Ethereum Solidity EVM focused. But like, what if, is it possible that there'd be like a multi-sig on another like blockchain altogether that could somehow tap into some of this? Or would it need to be, like, I'm assuming all the contracts are written in Solidity, so it's not like something you could like easily port over to like, I don't know, a fully different system. 
But yeah, have you thought at all about that? Like the avatar maybe coming from a different place? So I've thought a lot about uh, the avatar still being on an EVM chain, but messages being passed from other uh, other chains. So the the near Rainbow Bridge is a really good example of a of a, um, a header relay that's uh, pretty much trustless, pretty well trustless. Um, and so I can imagine a, a scenario where you have some kind of DAO structure on near that's bridging decisions over to uh, a Gnosis safe on mainnet Ethereum or on one of the other kind of EVM chains. That kind of scenario, um, I think, could could be possible from just about any network, and it's really just a matter of having a, a suitable data bridge. The other way, having like a, an avatar on another network would obviously mean rewriting all of the uh, the avatar code and then all of the uh, modules. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's that's a much more difficult uh, uh, kind of direction for information to flow. But if you're talking about kind of control flowing from uh, yeah, from Nia or from uh, I don't know Solana or from uh, yeah, any of these other kind of kind of smart contract platforms that are written in some other language. Uh, yeah, as long as they have some suitable data bridge, then it would most certainly be possible. Interesting. Um, okay, so now let's talk about the modifiers. So I think we've covered modules quite well, but yeah, what are, what's this modifier? And, and I don't know, are, are they already like listed? Are there too many of them? <laughs> like, what what do they look like? We have less modifiers than modules at the moment, and it's just another one of those um, building blocks. So mm-hmm. the way that I see modifiers is a a piece of code that sits between a module and the avatar. So okay. you can kind of you know deploy your module, deploy your avatar, and then say I want to do an extra step or two between you know what's happening in the module and what's happening at the avatar level. Uh, you could hook in a modifier and you know re- reroute the the message passing between these components and have some extra logic happen uh, in that intermediate step. Maybe we can talk a little bit about a modifier that we are building right now, and we're calling it the roles modifier. And the idea behind that is to take some execution and then you know check that execution before it reaches the avatar and determine some permission levels on that execution. And this is, I think, particularly useful. Um, it goes again into a bit of the safety side of DAO tooling. Uh, but what it can do is enable you know, certain bypasses to governance where you know, this you know, became a, a problem in practice for, I believe it was Compound DAO that made a mistake in one of their protocol upgrades and um, left some money on the table. And the only way to fix that was to go through the slow governance that initially caused the problem to begin with. So there was uh, no fast way to like correct this mistake that the original proposal had created. Uh, so you could conceive of having uh, a specialized role for a committee or some other form that is a little bit quicker to enact that could you know quickly route a message to correct that protocol upgrade. Um, and that's kind of a, you know the idea behind the roles is to, to give some extra uh, permissions to, to bypass or to do certain things. Cool. And that sounds like it could be incredibly useful, especially for younger protocols where there still needs to be a little bit of oversight from potentially the the team before they fully decentralize. So for kind of a a concrete example of this or a more concrete example, um, we were talking earlier about the the delay modifier being a kind of security feature uh, in that uh, by by allowing a time delay, you allow potential for someone to react to it, and kind of who that someone is is uh, 
it, we talked before about being kind of quite nebulous. It could be any one of a number of different things. So let's think about this in the context of the roles modifier. You might define a role that is uh, essentially like someone who is allowed to call the veto function on this delay modifier or the skip function on this delay modifier. So now you have a role that is allowed to call that function and you can assign that to whoever you want. So you may have a group of relatively trusted people in the community that you say, hey, it's your job if something goes through that we need to stop. We have this upgrade to our protocol and oh no, it means, you know, we just realized after it's gone through and it's sitting in the time delay that it means we're going to leave a whole bunch of money sitting there that anyone can take. Someone please go and veto it. And so you have now this group of people that have this one unilateral power. They can veto any proposal that goes through and they don't need to wait for DAO approval or anything like that. They can just go and call the veto function and uh, and stop it. So you kind of avoid that scenario by granting some limited power, some limited kind of unilateral power to uh, some small group of people. Yeah, a, a kind of a concrete way of thinking about the the delay modifier and the roles modifier may, may be acting in tandem. Nice. And there's one other point, which is guards. What are guards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, those are... The, the kind of, I guess, four kind of key components, avatars, modules, modifiers, and guards. And guards are a, um, a type of contract that lets you do kind of pre and post checks on execution. So you can install a guard on the safe or on uh, a Zodiac compliant module or modifier. And basically what it's going to do is uh, before it tries to uh, execute the code and then after it tries to execute the code or, or pass the code through, it's going to run this kind of pre-check on it uh, and then a post-check on it. And so the guard basically defines what that pre-check or post-check is. And so it might be things like our scope guard that uh, is, is very similar to the roles modifier that we've just talked about, where you can kind of set up some specific addresses and functions that uh, a particular module or modifier is allowed to interact with, or that say the multi-sig signers are allowed to interact with. Um, or you could do things like a post check that makes sure that some state hasn't changed. So say you want to make sure that uh, a multi-sig signer, a particular multi-sig signer is not removed or a particular module is not removed. You know, you want to make sure that no mm. one puts through a proposal that removes the, the reality module as a module and just <laughs> <Yeah>. breaks the <laughs> DAO. Uh, then you can have a scope guard that does that. Uh, or you say, you know, a guard that does that, that uh, checks to make sure that that piece of state hasn't changed. And if it has, then the whole transaction reverts. Got it. Uh, maybe it's good to do a quick recap on on just like what each of those pieces are. So the avatar is kind of the address on chain that represents the DAO. Uh, a module is something that would plug into an avatar to, to control it. A module has unilateral control over the avatar. And so you kind of implement whatever logic you want the uh, the module to be able to do in that module contract. Uh, a modifier would sit between a module and an avatar, mm -hmm. and you could kind of arbitrarily chain those as deep as you want. So you may have multiple modifiers sitting between a module and a, an avatar, mm -hmm. and then a scope is applied to uh, either the avatar directly or any of the modifiers or modules in between to do pre-checks and post-checks on execution. And like, just to double check that too, so in terms of modules, there's reality, bridge, and exit. Is exit a module? Yes, exit is a okay. module. And then modifiers would be the roles and the delay. Yeah, and the other way to distinguish modifiers is that they implement both the uh, the module and the avatar interface. So they basically, you can you can plug in and, and they've got kind of 
both both plugs, whereas the uh, the the modifier kind of can only send messages out essentially. Okay, very cool. This is actually really interesting because I mean, we I I've been thinking about potentially playing with the DAO idea in the near future. I don't have any, I have too many projects, so I really don't want to promise anything here, but I've, I've really appreciated going through the steps and the each module and trying to understand how they'd all work together. And also I like this idea that you just described, which you start with a multi-sig. So you start with something relatively easy. It's pretty easy to set up. People are kind of familiar with using it and then you could potentially add to it. I have a question a little bit about the types of DAOs that this is for, I mean, I know it's since it's modular, it's potentially for a very, very wide range, but like, I feel like there've been, and I don't know if maybe someone has defined this more accurately than, than I'm about to, but I feel like there's these clusters of types of DAOs kind of coming up. There's the DeFi DAOs, the DeFi DAOs. When I say this, it's like, you know, the compound DAO, I don't know if Ave has a DAO, but I'm guessing like all the DAOs that basically decide on the percentage of rewards that are going to be coming out. What's the fees? Like these, these sort of numeric decisions happening in DeFi. There's the NFT DAOs, which I fully don't understand at this point. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know what... I know that they have funds and that they have to do something with the funds, which I think is like market themselves more or something or buy albums. Um, and then there's things like the investment DAOs, grants um, or, or like actual investments. And there you can have like Moloch DAO, uh, Meta Cartel. There's like a bunch. And those are actually a little bit older. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is sort of a, a distinction I'm seeing maybe you have a different way of thinking about the landscape. And yeah, I'm curious to hear how you think about it and maybe where you think these tools are most effective. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think those categories are pretty useful um, and, and probably describe a good chunk of the DAOs in the space. Uh, there's, there's, yeah, DeFi uh, kind of governance DAOs for, yeah, governing both the kind of treasuries of and and generally, and in some cases, kind of parameters of uh, various DeFi ecosystems. Uh, the, these kind of more cultural or NFT-focused DAOs have become much more popular. Um, I think Nathan probably has more insight on that side of the ecosystem than I do. And then broadly, these kind of fund allocation DAOs, um, you, you identified those as potentially being a little bit older, and I think that's that's probably true. The, the Moloch ecosystem really uh, catalyzed that. I think there's probably a a fourth category there of kind of mission-driven DAOs that have some kind of specific purpose that they're trying to achieve. They want to go and change the world somehow, and and they kind of, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of direct funds towards doing that. Um, and then I think there's there's a very different style of DAO. Uh, I, I mean, generally, I would say like you've got two really broad classes of DAO. One is kind of very narrowly scoped. Uh, DAOs like the Bitcoin network or the Ethereum network, where you have your participation is running a node, uh, and you know the scope of work that you have is literally kind of running that node or running the, the consensus algorithm, participating in consensus to to kind of secure the network. And then the other kind of broad class of DAO is is much less tightly scoped, where it could be you know they're they're trying to do something uh, that may or may not kind of interact with the real world in some way, but it's a uh, it's much less tightly scoped in terms of how they how they actually interact uh, and and what they do, um, and then yeah, in that second kind of broader class, then yeah, it branches down uh, a whole bunch. But I think your categories make uh, broad sense. 
there might even be one that I, I feel like is missing here, which is like the DAOs that are there to make decisions about protocol upgrades. I don't know if you would consider the Zodiac as a framework for something like that. And maybe that's not a DAO that does that, but it's mostly maybe like in some, like I'd say like Cosmos and Polkadot, you have actually on-chain governance, which makes decisions on, and, and maybe some others. I bet I bet some others that I'm missing, but they, yeah, they make decisions on, on actually what upgrades are going to happen. Yeah, I, I would lump them in as the same in the same category as that that second kind of big bucket is just like that's that's a DAO that's much less tightly scoped um, than one that you participate in just for consensus. Yeah, I think that the first mention of DAOs that I could pull up was I think 2014. Uh, Vitalik was writing the difference between uh, DAs or just decentralized applications and DOs, decentralized organizations and DACs with you know company at the end. Um, and I think the real kind of difference between you know, a Bitcoin DAO and um, an NFT DAO is the, the autonomy part where, you know, Vitalik was defining the autonomy being how much of this DAO is uh, self-running and how much of it is, you know, just code based and uh, running completely on its own. But even Bitcoin requires, you know, some human intervention. There's been forks in Bitcoin the, where clients got out of date and had to uh, be corrected by humans to make sure that these you know forks didn't run in you know off in parallel directions and, and just go mad. Uh, so I think you know the autonomy part is probably the most vague part of the the DAO acronym, and um, there's always going to be you know less autonomy you know depending on certain certain types of DAOs and yeah. I guess maybe to to go back to your original question then about like where we would see Zodiac being useful, probably. I would say any, with the exception of that first kind of really broad category of essentially like narrow scoped kind of protocol DAOs, you know, they get, so Zodiac's probably not useful to uh, participate in the consensus, uh, you know, to, as a, to participate in, uh, in, in mining or, or proof of stake or something like that. Mm. But uh, I'd say anywhere else, it probably is. Uh, it could probably be used for. It's it's definitely built to be uh, as as flexible and uh, generally applicable as possible. I agree. I like the idea of this facilitating, you know, and to use the autonomy part, maybe the less autonomous ones, the ones that require a little bit more human intervention, uh, which is, I think, the general broader landscape of what we see as DAOs currently. Um, so I, I do think that it's uh, useful for for most DAOs, and I've been building in that direction to to try and make you know these tools as useful as possible to to most DAOs. And I think a way to do that is to try to incorporate uh, as many strategies as you can. And by strategies, I mean ways of of voting, ways of of coming together. We have kind of a a narrow scope of ways of voting, and uh, this has presented some issues and. Uh, there's been posts about you know the pitfalls of of coin voting and just relying entirely on uh, you know plutocratic methods to to get decisions across and and so it's been um, the majority of my work has been spent on making sure that there's other forms you know simple things you know reintroducing um, classic uh, politics reintroducing reintroducing legacy politics into DAOs things like one member one vote and maybe things that are a little bit more interesting like quadratic voting, which was actually tried uh, in Congress, I believe in Colorado at some point in 2018 or so. And the idea there is to, yeah, to kind of put a little bit of stake in what you're voting on to 
uh, to avoid the potential problems of just one member, one vote and majorities outweighing minorities and to be able to get a little bit more voice across, but still not run into the issues of full on plutocracy where money just is the, the ruling class. That actually leads me to my last kind of question I had, which was to revisit that concept of voting. Because when we went through all of the components of Zodiac, there isn't really a part that says what kind of votes or what the voting systems are. And I wonder, like, you know, if you look at even like reality and the staking game, the Oracle escalation game, that's not really a voting system as far as I can tell. So, so yeah, I'm curious to hear, like, where does the votes like, I, I get the idea that they might be happening on the L2, but we are ha- like, how are the voting systems defined? Like, say you wanted to do Macy, say you wanted to use quadratic voting. Do you build that with Zodiac or do you build that separately and then use Zodiac to kind of like get the results somewhere? So I created a module to fit into the Zodiac framework that is what I'm calling USEL, which is a, a term from... Uh, from Dune, which is okay. uh, a name of the a main character's like secret name or something, um, but it's <laughs> it, the idea is it, it's just a voting system, right? So it it kind of fills that question that you're having where where does the voting come from in this? Mm-hmm. And it's at its core, the module is just a place to load up your proposals to to get the data that you want executed into a centralized place, and then from there you're able to register different strategies to come to decisions on whether or not that data should pass. And so these strategies can be any type of voting. And I started with the example that's the most common, which would be delegated uh, coin voting, which Mm -hmm. you'd see out of Compound. But uh, we've also built one member, one vote to try things that, you know, systems like cooperatives would be more interested in. We are working with more, more exotic voting strategies like Macy and you know, you'd be able to create the the Macy voting system and then just plug that into this module. And you can always, again, keeping with the design philosophy of Zodiac, swap these things out. And even granularly on a proposal level, you know, as you're submitting proposals to the to the useful module, you can say, I prefer this voting strategy or this other voting strategy for this specific proposal. I wonder, like, it, since like Macy has been implemented. I believe there's like an implementation for the CLR fund and quadratic voting has definitely been implemented for Gitcoin. Can you reuse any of that or would you have to rebuild it somehow to fit within Zodiac? Yeah, the plan's definitely to reuse Macy. We'd, we'd really like to leverage Macy. I think like uh, the fact that all DAO voting right now is out in the open, uh, in public, kind of easily readable, easily tieable to your identity, uh, it leads to the, the possibility for some really negative outcomes. And so the ability, ability to kind of leverage tools like Macy to make much more kind of collusion resistant voting is uh, crucial for the DAO system, uh, DAO ecosystem to kind of evolve uh, and, and take a, a, a next step, I think. Taking a, a step back, you're kind of asking where the voting happens. Uh, this is a really, again, kind of deliberate choice uh, in designing Zodiac. Uh, just kind of recognizing that there is already a whole bunch of really great voting and decision-making tools out there. And so we didn't really need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, the idea here is more about plugging those things into one cohesive kind of core, using them as a uh, essentially a module to this this larger framework as opposed to uh, trying to, to displace them. So 
sub, you know, the, the existing tools that, that are already out there in, in Aragon and Dowstack and Colony and Compound and, uh, and, uh, Moloch, uh, really great. And we, we shouldn't just throw them out and stop using them. Uh, Zodiac is, is really there to just make those all, uh, uh, kind of composable pieces to one larger tool set. And then, yeah, Nathan's, uh, tool, Usul, his, his kind of work on that is what originally, uh, connected us um that's that's how we found nathan and um yeah the, the fact that he had kind of arrived at that conclusion independently and then started building um was you know he was just a natural fit and then yeah macy is uh is a, a project or kind of macy integration into usul is a project that nathan and i had started in our last build cycle and it got derailed by some other priorities mm. Uh, but we're we're very much hoping to get back into uh, in in a future cycle. You you mentioned ClearFund. That's a um a side project that I uh, work on. Cool. Um, yeah, I, it's so I've had a lot of experience kind of playing with Macy, and we're we're currently navigating the challenges of trying to do it on a true layer two. Uh, it's turning out to be a lot more expensive than uh, than we had predicted. Um, for we, we were hoping to run around on Arbitrum and just kind of benchmarking based on our previous round that we ran on uh, XDI and our Gnosis chain, we we had six thousand uh, almost seven thousand uh, participants who averaged about uh, ten messages each, so uh, somewhere around seventy thousand messages, and this basically means we have to do we have to do seven thousand. Transactions to Arbitrum if we wanted to run that same size round, okay, uh, which would end up being a, a really significant amount of money, given that you know a transaction to Arbitrum right now is a dollar or two, maybe three. Yeah, um, and so yeah, we're we're trying to kind of reconcile the want to uh, run rounds on a network that is um, that kind of shares Ethereum mainnet security model with just the the reality of the cost of doing it um, and kind of what scale we need to achieve in order to make that cost worthwhile. Wild. Yeah, actually, I wanted to create a grant over there. That was that was where I think uh, Weijie came on the show and shared Macy and mentioned that thing. And I was like, oh, man, I want to go over there and try it. I haven't done it yet. Still just on yeah, Bitcoin for now. Absolutely. Maybe one day. <laughs> when, we, um, when we fire up the next round, you absolutely should. Cool. But yeah, this is... Um, this is all kind of relevant for us thinking about how we would utilize it in Zodiac as well, because part of the point of uh, Zodiac, obviously, or part of the, the inspiration for it was lowering the barrier to entry. And so I want to be really uh, lowering the barrier to kind of participation. And so I want to be really con- cognizant of uh, building systems that have a, have a reasonable home uh, if they are going to be kind of gas intensive, you know, have a reasonable mm-hmm. home that uh, DAOs can deploy them and operate them. Uh, without uh, reintroducing that uh, that uh, financial kind of roadblock to a whole bunch of people potentially participating. Cool. Uh, so I think Gnosis Chain for the time being is still probably the preferable place to run something like this. Uh, uh, other networks that might be similarly uh, cost effective might be Polygon or, or you know other other essentially side chains. Um, I'm really keen to see. Uh, so ZKVM start to come online because I think that'll probably drop transaction prices on layer two considerably. Uh, but I know that they're still, uh, we still have a little bit of time to wait on those. Very cool. 
So maybe as a last question, uh, tell us a little bit about what the future for Zodiac holds. What are you working on right now? What can we expect to see in the pipeline? So I would like this stuff to be useful and usable as soon as possible. And um, to get that done, I will have a testnet version of being able to uh, vote with different strategies hooked into the Zodiac ecosystem uh, ready by the time this airs. So it's already on testnet. Uh, you can test out a large uh, majority of the functionality, but uh, by the time this airs, it should be um, the the coin voting that you're all familiar with and uh, one member, one vote, which I think is really important to get equality into voting systems. And uh, as Oren mentioned, we want to make sure that voting feels inclusive. And that's, I think, a missing piece of a lot of on-chain governance is this feeling that you must delegate or you know, that you have to sit on the sidelines and not be able to, to vote or that there's some a information asymmetry that you don't even feel qualified to vote. I want to try and break down all those barriers. So there's a, a test net that you'll be able to use at SecurDAO.com. That's S-E-K-E-R DAO. And that will be uh, using the Zodiac uh, ecosystem to allow you to boot up different voting types and, and try out different strategies. And we're also going to have the layer two to uh, the Gnosis chain bridge ready by then. The the other thing that I think we'll start to see and I'd like to see is is just more of the existing DAO tooling starting to explicitly enable kind of Zodiac features in their own framework. So enabling organizations to essentially spin up an avatar, spin up a safe or to bring an existing safe uh, over to their DAO uh, and, and enable that uh, progressive decentralization pathways to kind of relatively seamlessly flow into and through kind of those ecosystems. Uh, the Dow House guys uh, have been kind of blazing that trail a little bit, and I think we'll start to see some of the other frameworks following suit. Very cool. I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and kind of exploring the Zodiac landscape, all of the modules, how these pieces work together, and also kind of how these different voting systems are you know, enabling a lot of new ways for communities to interact. Yeah. So thanks to both of you. Cheers for having us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. This is awesome. <laughs> um, I want to say a big thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik, the podcast producer, Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.